Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Can you hear me okay? Okay, good. I can hear you too. That's good. Let's take a moment and uh, we'll pray together as we look at Scripture. Father, we're so grateful for the day, the beauty of the day, and the sun uh, warming the earth, and the signs all around us in creation of your abundant provision, all of which uh, uh, invites us. I pray, Father, that uh, we would have ears to hear even this morning the invitation from your Holy Spirit uh, in order that each one of us might be um, wooed by you, and not only wooed, but by grace we'd respond and turn to you and pursue. Uh, Speak to us now, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning as we look at uh, Song of Solomon chapter 3 in an ongoing series out of Song of Solomon by contrasting two quotes from two different men. Oscar Wilde is a playwright and a bit of a wild guy as well, if you know his story, and Henry Nouwen is a Catholic priest and uh, professor, instructor. They both are writing about, uh, in a way, sexuality and uh, their view of sexuality, and Oscar Wilde says this, I'm quoting now, he says, everything is about sex except sex, which is provocative. And he goes on and he says, uh, sex is about power. Everything is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Contrast that with Henry Nouwen who writes this, articulating uh, Christ's vision uh, for intimacy in Genesis chapter 2. Nouwen says, in love, men and women take off all the forms of power, embracing each other in total disarmament. The nakedness of their bodies is merely symbolic of their total vulnerability and availability to each other. When the physical encounter of men and women in the act of intercourse is not an expression of total availability, it has built-in reservations and mental restrictions or time limits. And when that happens, what we're really saying in our intercourse is, I want you now but not tomorrow. Or I want something from you but I don't want you. Or I want what you can do for me, but I don't want to know you. True vulnerability and love is limitless. And only when men and women give themselves to each other in total surrender with their whole being for their whole life can their encounter bear full fruit. What a contrast uh, between Nouwen and Oscar Wilde. Sex isn't about power, not in God's design. It is in our world, but in God's design, uh, uh, sex is really about vulnerability and total availability to one another. And so we're invited in intimacy into a place of nakedness and vulnerability, not a place of power. In fact, a place of intentionally shedding power. That's where we're invited. And that's what covenant love looks like. And so the question on the table this morning is how do we get into that place of uh, nakedness and vulnerability to which we are invited because we're all of us are in the room are made for intimacy. Intimacy with God, intimacy with one another. How do we get there? How do we get to that place of nakedness? And we see some of the answers in a contrast offered us in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 3 where we see uh, a, a different approach to love between this woman and her pursuit of her true love and, and Solomon and his pursuit of other women. And what we see in, in, in contrast is the pursuit of intimacy versus the pursuit of power, and uh, we see active pursuit versus passivity. So intimacy versus power, pursuit versus uh, passivity, that's what we're looking at this morning, two contrasts. We're going to begin here by looking at um, intimacy versus power. So if you have a Bible, and uh, I hope you do, but if you don't, uh, Song of Solomon in your Old Testament, the third chapter, we're going to look at... um, so the verses here, it's pretty valuable this morning, I'd say, to read it because 
Something shows up right away here at the, at the beginning of the text, and, and it's her description of the one that she loves. And four times, this is what she calls him. Four times she says in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, him whom my soul loves. I'm seeking him whom my soul loves. You see, four times. And I just want to focus in for just for a moment here to set the stage on the word soul, because the word soul is pretty significant. In the Old Testament, the word soul is literally the word nephesh, right? And what, it, what soul represents is significant, because all of us, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, all of us are made in three parts, body, soul, and spirit, right? And, and so the soul, in a sense, and I'm speaking a little bit poetic, poetically, a little bit theologically, but the soul sits between the body and the spirit, in other words, the spirit's eternal. Your spirit is already complete in Christ. Your spirit will never die, but your body will die. And so there's a distinction between, between spirit and, and, and body. Your body will be resurrected and reunited with your spirit, but uh, there will be a separation. Now, the thing is, so because these two are different, what's in the middle holding the whole thing together? It's, it's actually, it, it's the soul. And, and, and so the soul becomes, for you, the animating force for the body. In other words, the way you present right now, are you looking at me or not looking at me? Are you smiling or frowning? Are you awake or sleeping? All of that is happening based on your soul, right? And then so the soul reflects to the body, but what the soul does is it also receives from the spirit. And to the extent that your spirit is filled with Christ, uh, Christ now is animating your soul and your soul is animating your body. So what she's saying here, when she says, him whom my soul loves, the soul in the Old Testament is representative of the whole person. That's why it says, uh, love the Lord your God with you know, your heart, your strength, your might, and your what? Your soul, all of your being. So when she says, I'm seeking him uh, with all my soul, this is what she's saying, my emotions, my intellect, my history, my longings, my fears, my failure, my shame, my hope, my joy, my brokenness, my body, my illness, everything. I'm taking all that I am and pursuing him, right? And so she is pursuing him, as we'll see in a moment. But she's pursuing him for the purpose of intimacy, not power. And this is what we're going to see here. Look, as we talk about intimacy versus power, look at particularly verse 4. So she's, she's, uh, uh, she's seeking him. And it's kind of a dream on my... Bed night after night, I sought him whom my soul loved. Sought him and didn't find him. So then she's saying, I, I, I'm, I'm desperate. I want to be with the one that I love. So she gets up in the middle of the night and she goes out into the city, into the streets, into the squares. And she's, you can imagine her looking around. Hey, has anyone seen the, the person, the, him whom my soul loved? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? She's asking everywhere. She's even asking the watchmen who are making the rounds in the city, who make the rounds in the middle of the night, have you seen him whom my soul loves? No one has seen him. But then she sees him. And so when she sees him, it's a very touching story, verse 4, uh, she says, scarcely had I left the watchman when I found him. I found the one whom my soul loves. And then this is what it says. So I, I, I held on to him and I wouldn't let him go. Now that sounds controlling, but it's just poetry, right? So I want you to understand here what she's saying. I held on to him, wouldn't let him go. And now this, it, gets, it sounds like it gets a little weird here. Wouldn't let him go until I brought him to my mother's house into the room of her who conceived me. What? What's that about? Okay, this is very important you understand here that when we're talking about this poetry, uh, poetry, we're talking about imagery, right? And so what's going on here is she is saying something significant in verse 4 when she talks about the bed of her parents. 
She's saying that that bed for her represents intimacy. That's where I was conceived. My parents loved each other. I was conceived in love. Uh, and, and, and I want to bring my lover to that place. Not literally that place, but that place of safety and intimacy. Does this, does this make sense to you? And this is hugely, hugely significant for us because it is showing us that we are made for a place of intimacy. We're made for a place where we can be vulnerable and be with the one that we love in our vulnerability, in our nakedness, and know that we know that we are loved. Even though in the moment we may have needs, profound needs, we know the other is a safe place. We know we're loved in that relationship. Says, I want to bring him into, into that kind of relationship. I want to be that safe place for him. Now, uh, hugely significant, I hope that all of you in the room, when we, when we try and unpack this, can think of at least moments in our lives that were represented like as a safe place, if not physical uh, geography. One of, one of the safe places in my life is a baseball stadium that no longer exists, Candlestick Park. Now, you may think baseball is just a total waste of time. I get it. It's a little bit, it can be boring. And after yesterday with the Mariners, especially boring, right? 18 to 1 or whatever was the final score. Uh, and yet, uh, I have a profound memory uh, as, a, as an adopted child of feeling deeply and, and unconditionally loved at a baseball game. We would drive from Fresno, which is 105 degrees, over the coast and go to giant baseball games. And they're in San Francisco. And one night we went, and uh, to be honest, I was underdressed. I had a little giant T-shirt on, but I didn't bring a coat with me. And uh, we show up for a, a game that starts at like 6 in the evening. And if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know that in San Francisco, uh, summer is the new winter, basically. Right? When the sun goes down, the fog rolls in, the wind whips up, and the wind at this particular candlestick park would just blow straight in off the water. And the wind chill factor in that stadium had to be crazy on a good night. And we were there on the coldest night in the history of the stadium. And so, you know, foggy... Uh, Pop flies are getting lost in the fog. It's ridiculous. And I got a T-shirt on, and I'm freezing, and I want to actually go back to the Motel 6 uh, in Burlingame by the train <laughs> that ran all night long because that was at least warm. But, I don't, but, but here's the thing. I don't want to tell my dad that because I don't want to miss the game. Can you imagine? So I'm cold, and I want to go somewhere, but I don't want to miss the game. My dad sees this, picks me up, puts me in his lap. He wisely brought an overcoat for himself. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> Wraps me in this overcoat, buttons it so my head's sticking out like a kangaroo pouch, right? <laughs> Orders hot chocolate and is kind of feeding me hot chocolate and instantly I'm not just warm, I'm loved. Does this make sense to you? Like this is a memory for me that represents so much represents safety, represents I was vulnerable, you saw me in my vulnerability, and you brought me in, and you wrapped your arms around me, and you gave me exactly what you knew that I would need to, to, like, to feel restored. This is intimacy, do you see? And, and, and so uh, I hope that all of us have places of intimacy, and for some, including this woman, intimacy is represented by her parents' bed, and I bet if you asked my own children what's the kind of the the favorite memories that you have at Christmas morning in our household growing up, they wouldn't say anything about the presents. We had presents, but they would say, hey, the best thing about Christmas is you, Mom and Dad, you, you, you wouldn't wake up until we all came and we sat in the bed. And so they knew they couldn't get presents without coming up and sitting in the bed. And we thought in making this rule 
that uh, they'd all come in and then we'd just get out of bed immediately and go down. Oh, no. Sometimes hours in the bed together, right? Laughing, telling stories, talking about the last year and the things that happened in our lives. Tickle fights, pillow fights, hugs, tears, safety. That's that bed, right? Intimacy, vulnerability. And she's saying, I'm going to seek my beloved, and when I find my beloved, listen, you know where we're going to go together? This is what she's saying. Do you know where we're going to go? We're going to go to the place of safety where I can be completely vulnerable with you, and you can be completely vulnerable with me. We're going to go to the place of nakedness, vulnerability, and intimacy, because that's the life for which we're created. Now, this is profound. And as application, at a couple of levels, first of all, know this, in our relationship with God, we are absolutely made for that kind of intimacy. We're made for it. And we see it uh, with Jesus in his restoration of Peter in John chapter 21. Jesus is, he's out looking for Peter. And he finds him. Jesus is on the shore. Peter's in the boat. And uh, he, he, he shouts out to Peter, hey, you caught anything? And Peter has denied Christ and fled and lied. And, 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 and now he's fishing. He hasn't caught anything. Hey, put your net on the other side, said Jesus. He puts his net over there. Peter fills his boat with fish. He immediately knows it's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat. He runs ashore. He has breakfast with Jesus. And though we don't have time for it here in the moment, I will say to you, that breakfast was a place of intimacy. <laughs> because Jesus is saying to Peter in that breakfast, I know you. I know you failed me. I know you lied. I know you denied me. I know you said you'd die for me, but instead you lied uh, to, to a young girl. <laughs> and yet I'll tell you this, Listen, Peter, I still love you because my love was never predicated on performance. Here's Jesus. Peter, I'm safe. You can fail with me. You can doubt with me. You can be angry with me. Is Jesus that for you? Is Jesus safe? I would suggest to you this is profoundly important. We often teach people in, in Christian circles, not that Jesus is safe, but that Jesus is, as Nick pointed out, like the, 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 the quiz instructor, and he's looking for us for right answers. Hey, defend my divinity. Defend my humanity. Defend my atonement. De- defend the virgin birth. Are you kidding me? What Jesus wants above everything else is not our doctrinal propriety. What he wants above everything else, the most important thing, do you love me? Deuteronomy 6. This is... This is the thing. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what does the Lord require of you? One thing, love God. (laughs) And what does love mean? It means that you go to God in vulnerability and receive from God all that God has to give you there. Let God become for you the safe place. Very, very important. And, you know, when you think about this at at a horizontal level, you discover that if in our relationship with our significant other, with our spouse, if we don't pursue intimacy through vulnerability, there's only one other option, and it's power. And power is the antithesis of intimacy. Yeah, you can still have sex, but it's power. It's not intimacy anymore. It's very interesting. Uh, when When you look in the Bible for kind of healthy relationships of vulnerability and intimacy between a married couple, it's actually pretty hard to find. I went on Facebook yesterday because I was finishing preparing for this. And I said, hey, can anybody think of uh, happy married couples in the Bible? And uh, really the same, like three, ta- three different couples came up. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Ruth and Boaz, and uh, Mary and Joseph. All the others, uh, not so much. So think about that. This is the, we're talking about the Bible. 
We're talking about people who love God, right? Who want to be in God's story, and yet in spite of that, we love God, know God, want to walk with God. Maybe a thousand couples in the Bible, I can find three that are really vulnerable and happy and content along the road that is their, their married life. Now, you know, why is that? Well, because if, we, if we're unwilling to choose vulnerability, we end up in power, and the power is the antithesis of intimacy. One, one classic example of kind of a power-based uh, relationship that kills intimacy is the story of Jacob, right? Do you guys know uh, Jacob's story in the Bible? God, the, God is the God of, in, in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's like third down from Abraham. And uh, Jacob is on the run. He's, you know, done some stuff, and he's running away from his family. And he encounters this woman, and it's kind of love or lust at first sight, depending on how you read it, but it's, it says he saw Rachel, and he wanted to marry her. So then he says to the dad, Laban, hey, I want to marry Rachel. So uh, the dad says, sure, work for seven years for me, and I'll give her to you. She has no say in the matter. That's power. And then, uh, so he works for seven years, and it says, I love this, it says, and it seemed but a few days because of his love for her, right? So, so now seven years, and then he says, basically, paraphrasing, okay, I've earned her, I paid for her, she's mine now, again, uh, not, uh, not intimacy, but power. So on the wedding day, Laban, uh, instead of giving Rachel to Jacob, gives Rachel's sister to Jacob, Leah, right? Now, did he want to marry Leah? No. But one of the funniest verses in the Bible, it says, and after the wedding... He woke up and behold, it was Leah. Don't you love that? Like, I'm like, how did that happen? Anyway, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Maid of honor. Little mistake. But now I'm married to you. And he has to, he has to work for seven more years for Rachel because uh, uh, the, the father-in-law was manipulative, right? So now, he's married to both women, but he loves one. He doesn't love the other. That's not intimacy, and he's always, he's always sleeping with uh, Rachel, but Leah is the one producing children for him. And he, though she continues to produce, he still doesn't love her. Tragic story. It's like the housewives of New Jersey or something like that. <laughs> because then, as the infertility goes on and becomes kind of systemic on both sides, both of them ultimately give their maids to Jacob to marry as well. So now he has four wives, not eight, but four. And, and, uh, and now he has to sleep with all of them, and they're trying, the two first wives, to vicariously conceive through the maids that they've given him, and he's being forced to sleep with various women on various evenings. And the whole thing reaches an apex in, in Genesis chapter 30 because Leah has some fertility flowers of some sort that she's raising in her garden, and Rachel still hasn't conceived any children. So Rachel goes to Leah and says, hey, uh, give me some of those fertility flowers because I want to conceive a child. And Leah says, no way, you're sleeping with them all the time anyway. I'll give you the flowers if I can sleep with them tonight. So Rachel cuts a deal for fertility drugs from her sister, but now... Uh, he, Jacob, has to sleep with Leah. And so, Leah, so Jacob comes home from the fields after a long day's work, and Leah meets him at the door and says, literally, Genesis chapter 30, you must sleep with me tonight. I've bought you. May you live happily ever after, right? <laughs> like, there's a, like there's this conspicuous absence of intimacy. Why? Because, listen, it's not like those four women and Jacob all made a pact one day and said, hey, let's be ma manipulative and hate each other. No one says that. That's the byproduct, listen, always, of uh, 
choosing to ignore your call to vulnerability. If I, if I won't choose vulnerability, the only option left to me, power. And that's why Oscar Wilde said it. Everything's about sex except sex. Uh, sex is about power. So, so we must see here, all of us in the room want to avoid being in relationships like Jacob and Leah, and yet some of us in the room are in relationships just like that. And so the kind of the question on the table is, like, how, if I'm longing for safety in my marriage, or if I'm dating or single and I'm longing to be in such relationships eventually, understand here, this is very important, the basis for finding that kind of safety begins with being a safe person. In other words, you can't go in and say, I want a place where I can be vulnerable and you will accept me entirely because you're marrying a broken person. So how will I ever find that safety? It begins not by finding safety and receiving from another. It begins by being a safe person. But then the question is, if I'm not myself a safe person, how can I become one? And there's only one way. And that's this. I find my safety in my relationship with God. That's it. And so when I find my safety in my relationship with God, and I know that in Christ I can be vulnerable with Jesus, that safety heals me now enabling me to become a safe person for another. So safety begins not in finding a safe person. Safety begins in being a safe person. And being a safe person requires receiving the perfect safety found in Christ that, uh, that shows up in the form of unconditional grace from God. This is why I say to people over and over and over again, my hope for you is this, that Jesus becomes your best friend. Because I tell you what, uh, your spouse is good, and beautiful, and the hope is that you have a safe and intimate relationship, but know this, uh, probably at the, at the least, if you have a nearly perfect relationship, one of you will die first, unless you're roped together and you're on an avalanche or something like that or a crevasse, and then, you know, that's what Don and I pray for. We hope it happens that way. <laughs> but one of you will die, and then the other will be alone. And now where will you find your safety? Where will you find your vulnerability? Or if your relationship is less than perfect, which is all of us, where will we find our safety when our, my, my spouse is unable to be for me what I need? What then? Christ. How about when I travel? Christ. How about when I live down here half the time alone as a bachelor? Christ. Christ is my source. Christ is my best friend. Christ is enough, and that enables me to receive the healing I need to be the safe person that my spouse needs. And this is, this is what creates a difference between, you know, shopping for someone who will do something for us and seeking to serve another in the name of Christ. It all begins with being the right person. So in contrast to her bed, which is a place of safety, Solomon's bed is a place of power. And so you see in verses 6 and 7, what's this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and scented powders of the merchant? Look, it's the traveling couch of Solomon with 60 mighty men around it, mighty men of Israel, all of them carrying swords. So in other words, this is the other bed. One scholar writes, the word couch here is best thought of as a bed, not a throne. Finally, a upholstered vehicle on which the king travels, as it were, on his journey of sexual delight. So it's in the desert, not the garden. It's heavily guarded, not a place of safety. It's outwardly filled with pomp, but in reality, it's a place of loneliness and fear. <laughs> and a good case can be made for taking chapter 3, verse 6, what is coming up from the wilderness, as an allusion actually to the female victim who's on that bed. 
Because the force of the question could equally be translated not what is coming from the desert, but who is coming from the desert with the feminine pronoun defining the who. So it's a woman who comes up and she's rising from the royal bed in a way that smoke rises up into the sky when a sacrifice is burnt. She's the sacrificial victim, you see. And in truth then, Solomon has pomp, power, majesty, wealth, and access to any pleasure he wants. And though he has access to all the sexual pleasure he could ever want, what he has discovered is that my access to pleasure is wholly and thoroughly unsatisfying. Because hear me, I am not made for pleasure, I'm made for intimacy. Now this applies profoundly in a culture of pornography. When we at more than any time in, in, in the history of the world have access to vicarious sexual pleasure, just like Solomon, as much as you want, a thousand women, 10,000 women, they're yours, yours in quotes. But here's the thing, Solomon articulates this in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes when he said, I had access to all the pleasure, I had all the wine I wanted, I had all the women I wanted, I had gardens, I had architecture, I had beauty, I had power, and, and, and in spite of my access to as much pleasure as I wanted, here's my conclusion, <sighs> vanity, nothing satisfied. Wow. Not the next sex conquest, not the next relationship, not the, not the next anything. Because until I become the right person, no intimacy. And without intimacy, no satisfaction. So Solomon is the bed of power, basically. Now let's, let's think about this before we move on and apply the distinction between these two paradigms. We are the bride of Christ. We gather here this morning as the bride of Christ, right? And so God has given us the opportunity as the bride of Christ to, uh, according to John 15, to abide in Christ. And let me explain what we mean by that. Jesus is using, actually, Erotic language in John, in John 15. Jesus says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And if you abide, listen, if you abide in me, here's the promise, you will bear fruit. Fruit, what does that mean? You know, fruit, just like a, a, a bride, just like a bride bears fruit, you'll bear fruit. Why? You're the bride of Christ. So you as the bride of Christ are filled with nothing less than the seed of Christ's life. And as you're filled with the seed of Christ's life, the promise is this. You uniquely now, impregnated with nothing less than the resurrected Jesus, have the capacity to be in the world hope, mercy, justice, hospitality, joy, healing, power, strength, wisdom. It's yours. Why? Christ is living in you. This is amazing to me. So we have this capacity at our disposal, but the only way that I can abide in Christ... This so important, I must come to Christ naked. In other words, this is why confession is important in the scriptures. Because in confession, what I'm doing is I'm articulating, Jesus, this is who I am, and I'm coming to you right now in my doubt, or my anger, or my fear. So important that we stop being religious and approaching Jesus, seeking to give Jesus the answers we think Jesus wants. The only answer Jesus wants from you is your naked authenticity. He can take it. When you're angry, he can take it. Read the Psalms. When you doubt, he can take it. Look at Thomas. When you're lonely, he can take it. When you're happy, he can take it. When you want to, when you want to fall out and worship and kiss his feet, he can take it. <laughs> Be authentic. Not religious. I had a string of deaths when I, that I encountered in my family. Profound losses. Uh, and I was depressed and I had some health issues. And I was studying architecture down in California. And a friend of mine slipped me a note one day. And he said, Richard, Jesus can take it. Be honest. 
Be honest with Christ. Let him know what you think. Pour your heart out. And I did. Have you ever been to Cal Poly? Uh, some of you have. There's these hills above the campus. And I went up in the hills there where my friends would go running all the time. And I just sat on a rock. And I started talking to Jesus. And I poured my heart out. Jesus, my aunt died. My grandmother died. My, my dad died. My, my other close aunt died. My aunt who lived in San Luis Obispo died. On the operating table, a minor operation on Sunday. Saturday, she'd invite me to her house for supper. I said, no. I'll see you Monday after the surgery. She's dead. And I, like I was, I remember, I'm shaking my feet. God, what are you doing? That's when healing begins, when you can be honest, you see. I remember weeping, but I remember, too, at the end of it, knowing, just like Candlestick Park, I'm wrapped in the arms of Christ. It's okay, Rich. Pour your heart out, man. I love you right here, right now. This is what God's inviting us to, that kind of intimacy, you see. So now let's uh, move on. And talk about uh, pursuit versus passivity. Because she has a posture of, a posture of pursuit. Again, verses uh, 1 through 3. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. So I got up and went all over the city. Seeking again, verse 2. Verse 3, asking, where is he? I'm seeking again. And then, and then I found him. And so you see her pursuing him. And what I, just to make a very brief observation here, she's the woman and she's pursuing him. And last week in chapter two, he's the man and he's pursuing her. So he's pursuing her. She's pursuing him. The pursuit is mutual. Let's first apply this to our role as the body of Christ. If you're a Christ follower or, or you love Jesus, understand that you have an invitation to calling to pursue Jesus. Don't live in passivity, assuming that it's only Jesus pursuing you. Jesus is pursuing you, Psalm 139. Where are you going to go where Christ isn't already there? You can run. There's the, you know, the parable of the prodigal son, and you know, he runs away. But the love is still available. And there's, and there's the parable of the 99 sheep and the one lost, and Jesus going after the one. Yes, Jesus is pursuing you. But there's also, all through the Scripture, this imperative that we seek Christ, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found says Peter in his very first sermon, you know. And so uh, there's, this, there's this notion of pursuit. And the Apostle Paul articulates it so beautifully in what Kindy read this morning in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, I have this whole history of my life, all these credentials, but I'm throwing them all in the rubbish heap because there's one, I have one new goal. And the one goal is this, that I may know, and the word there is a know of intimacy, like Genesis 2, like sexual intimacy, that I may know Christ. I want intimacy with Christ. That's his one goal. <laughs> and when I was studying architecture and I went off to uh, a camp and heard somebody speak, my life verse was offered to me, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. Look, if you're wise, don't boast of your wisdom. If you're rich, don't boast of your, of your riches. If you're strong, don't boast of your strength. If you'll ever boast of anything, boast of this that you what? That you know me, says the Lord. Wow. And this guy who was speaking was literally pointing at me. And I was like this, I wonder who he's speaking to right now, you know, and I'm looking around. Oh, this is for me. In my depression, in my confusion, in my anger at God, here's an invitation. Make knowing God the main goal of your life. And I'm just going to say to you, I went out in the snow and I prayed. I said, that's the one thing. I don't know what it means vocationally. I don't know what it means relationally. I was single at the time. I don't know anything. I know this. God, I want to know you. Changes everything. I mean, do you want to know God? 
It's kind of uh, what's on the table here this morning. Oh, yeah, you know, I want to know God. Uh, there's, there's a wrong way of knowing God, and it's the posture of passivity that we'll see in this, in this next little section. Because when we look at Solomon, rather than pursuing intimacy, we see total passivity. A, Solomon isn't even walking. He's being carried, right? B, he doesn't go out and uh, seek women and, and woo them in any way. He uses his power to conscript them into sexual service for him. So he has other people bringing women to him. He's, he's being carried. Other people are bringing women to him. And he has all these guards around the bed so that she can't leave. And even uh, uh, when Solomon, uh, before he became king, when, when David died, Adonijah sought to become king. And Solomon was the rightful heir to the throne, and he didn't, even, he didn't even fight for the throne. Like his mother fought for him. He's passive. So the best stories of love in the scriptures are always stories of mutual pursuit, right? He's pursuing her. She's pursuing him. Maybe in the room know these love stories because you, are, you could be married to someone, perhaps, who likes these kind of romantic comedies. Are you... You familiar with these? Anybody in the room? Who kind of watches these movies? Raise, raise your hand. Anybody like romantic comedies? Is there anyone in the room who, who has to like romantic comedies because <laughs> someone else does? Nah, all the hands go up now, right? I'll never forget uh, You've Got Mail, right? It's a Seattle film, sort of. But there is, you know, he's pursuing her, but she's... Distant, and then she's pursuing him, and he's distant. And back, you know, back and forth it goes. Why does that resonate with us so much? Because all of us love to see mutual pursuit, right? And in contrast, the worst love stories aren't love stories at all, but they're stories of using power, or control, or manipulation in, in order to bring a person into somebody's orbit for use. And our world is often about this. And often, I'll be blunt. This is often how we approach Jesus as well. We want, we want something from Jesus rather than wanting Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus had, you know, fed 5,000 people. It's fantastic. And yet, though he had fed 5,000 people, I mean, the conclusion was, oh, you guys are seeking me. Not because you want me, you want the bread. Jesus the baker. Jesus the sex therapist. Jesus the financial advisor. No, no. Listen, come to me, all you who are weary and labor and heavy laden, Matthew 11, and I'll give you rest. And the rest is what? Me. I'm your rest. Rest in me. I'm enough. Boy, sometimes I think uh, we want to co-opt God when we need God the way Solomon grabbed a woman when he wanted a woman. And no, we're called to intimacy. And intimacy means not I want you right now because I'm lonely. Intimacy means I'm with you all the time, you see. So uh, she kind of concludes this whole story with something embedded in the middle of the chapter, actually. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now I'll just stop right there because adjure is not a word you used today. Right? Did anyone use the word yet? Adjure? Uh, it's like a strong exhortation. That's adjure. 
So I would use it in a sentence. I adjure you Mariners, stop losing by 18 runs, right? <laughs> it's like, it's a strong exhortation. So, so um, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, don't arouse love until it's time. Wow. Let's talk about this uh, horizontally. Don't, don't pursue uh, a, someone with whom you can be vulnerable and find a safe place. That's not the first question. The first question is, become the safe place. Don't awaken love before it's time. Don't go out thinking, you know, I want to I find somebody who will meet my, quote, unquote, meet my needs. Don't, don't do that. Start with asking the question, how is God shaping me so that I can be a person who serves another well? I, uh, when I teach at Cape and Ray schools, often uh, we, I teach Genesis sometimes, and when I talk about marriage, I say, often uh, the dating relationships feel to me like a tick in, in pursuit of a dog, right? People, someone is coming saying, hey, I have all these needs. Will you please meet my needs? And of course, the problem is in our culture is... Uh, there are no dogs. We're all ticks. <laughs> and so, like a tick-tick relationship is unsustainable, if I can just say it that way. So the question on the table isn't, hey, how can I find this perfect person who will meet all my needs? The, the question on the table is this, how can I be a safe place? And the only way I can be a safe place is to acknowledge that I, in my vulnerability, have nowhere to go other than Christ. And he will now sustain me and heal me and transform me through his infinite unconditional love. So don't awaken love horizontally before it's time. Become the right person. And then vertically, again, don't awaken love before it's time. In other words, listen, if you're going to fall in love with Christ, then uh, make sure that you're committed to knowing Christ and entering into a relationship where you're authentic with Christ, vulnerable with, with Christ, seeking Christ and receiving from Christ all that Christ is. Well, when's the right time to do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christ is calling you this very day, knocking. I want intimacy with you that you now might receive from me all that I have to give you. I will heal you in your illness. I will forgive you in your sin. I will strengthen you in your weakness. I will be for you who you could never be so that you now, being the right person, can become a safe place for others. And so that you, Bethany, being the right people, can be a safe place in this city and in our world. That's our calling. But it all starts here in seeking Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And when is that? Today. Let's pray. Father, uh, we've spoken these things this morning uh, in order that we might be people of intimacy, horizontally and vertically. And our prayer and hope and intercession is that you would speak to every person in the room about the next steps to take. Some of us need to know you for the first time. Some of us need to move beyond religion and be authentic with you, confessing, confessing our anger, our fear, our, our, our failure. Some of us need to love one another in ways we never have. Not power relationships, but relationships of vulnerability. Would you speak to each of us uniquely and give us ears to hear, hearts to respond? We pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Let's worship together.